Welcome to Invested in Climate. Protecting the planet and decarbonizing the global economy is the challenge of our time. We all have a role to play, and the opportunity we face is unprecedented. Invested in Climate aims to help people do more to address climate change through their work, investments, lifestyle, and activism. I'm your host, Jason Rissman. I support a growing community of top climate and ESG leaders as the Chief Experience Officer at Nations Wealth, and I'm an advisor to the climate practice at IDEO. I'm also an investor and startup advisor, and when it comes to climate action, I know I'll be a lifelong learner always looking to have more impact. If you like what you hear, give us a good rating on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you found us. Sign up for updates and suggest ideas for future episodes at investedinclimate.com. Follow us on social, subscribe, and spread the word. Thanks for joining. To be honest, I thought in the beginning this project would be mostly a tactical undertaking that us NGOs would care about. And and it's been a little bit stunning to me to see how many people want to reduce emissions if you can just give them the data. You know, I've been an environmental activist for a long time, about 10 years now, and it's just been stunning to me on this project how many people want the data and want to reduce the emissions of their organization if we can just give them the tools. And it feels like swimming downstream. And so we have, what was it, 15,000 downloads in the first week with the new data and a really striking number of organizations starting to actually optimize. Hey everyone, we all know that addressing climate change means eliminating greenhouse gas emissions. But have you ever stopped to wonder how we know how much we're actually emitting? The truth is, we haven't really known, but instead rely on estimates. These estimates fail to provide very specific data about where exactly emissions are coming from, when, and what investment and policy choices might be most effective in turning them off. Today's episode focuses on an incredibly ambitious initiative called Climate Trace a collaboration of over 100 organizations that use a dizzying number of satellites and remote sensors to actually detect and track emissions at a global level. Vice President Al Gore is a co-founder of the initiative, along with Gavin McCormick, who runs a nonprofit called WattTime. We're joined today by Gavin, who explains how Climate Trace works, Vice President Gore's role with the effort, their theories of change, surprises, progress, and hopes for the initiative, and much more. Climate Trace is positioned to play a central role in improving transparency and planning at a global level, and I was thrilled to get to learn more about it through this interview. Enjoy. Gavin, welcome to Invested in Climate. So great to have you here today. Thanks. It's great to be here. Where are you dialing in from? I'm in Western Massachusetts right now, Williamstown, Mass. Okay. Well, fantastic. Thanks for joining. We're on a Friday afternoon, so evening your time. Thanks for joining and miss it being the start of your weekend. Let's get started just by hearing a bit about you and your background and the organization that you're leading today. Sure. So I'm an economist by training, which is kind of unusual in tech. My background is I was a PhD student in behavioral and environmental economics at UC Berkeley when me and some strangers at a hackathon tripped over a technique to automatically reduce pollution from electricity. So now I run Watt Time, a nonprofit devoted to that, and I'm one of the many co-founders of this Climate Trace Coalition. Very cool. Tell us more about what Watt Time does and what it's doing in the world today. Sure. So our name comes from what time would I have to use electricity to run it on renewables? 
It turns out that these days we're building renewable energy so fast. In California, literally one third of the time you flip a light switch, you didn't cause any pollution at all. They're actually throwing away surplus renewable energy that often now. So at what time, what we do is we identify when is this renewable energy surplus happening? And we help automate fleets of thermostats like Nest thermostats, electric vehicles like Toyota EVs, batteries and other devices to shift the time they use energy to moments that there's clean energy instead of polluting. And we call it automated emissions reduction. So we're a nonprofit, but instead of doing advocacy work, we provide technical solutions to reduce emissions with data. Very cool. And you're also the founder of a project called Climate Trace. Tell us about that and how it got started. Yeah, one of many founders. So the thing that happened was Watt Time and a couple of the groups like Transition Zero in the UK were a bunch of nonprofits at the same moment, realizing we were all trying to save the same problem. We had all these advanced technical solutions to reduce emissions, but these tech stacks were all built on open public data about power plants. And that's great for the handful of countries that monitor power plants globally. But what are you going to do in the rest of the world? So we decided to team up and make sort of a club where all of us would start ourselves monitoring the power plants in the world using satellites and AI to make it possible for anyone to find out any moment what was the pollution that came out of any power plant anyone in the world. And that grew over time from an electricity-focused coalition to a very large coalition now called Climate Trace of about 100 collaborating organizations pooling our resources to produce a data set of what are all the emissions in the world from every source so that kind of like anybody can go look up anything they want on Wikipedia, anyone can now go look up what are the emissions of any source on the planet. Gavin, I'm struck by the complexity of this initiative. I've read that there's over 300 satellites and over 100,000 sensors tracking almost 80,000 facilities across 38 industries. It's kind of mind-boggling. Well, it's a monumental achievement, but I suppose it really begs the question of why? Why go through all this effort? Why is detailed emissions mapping so important? The fundamental thesis behind Climate Trace is that there's not one answer to that question. Frankly, if there was one thing you could do with the data set that is this hard to produce, wouldn't be worth it. So we're tracking right now 32 different answers to that question. We call them theories of change. And a theory of a change would be a specific mechanism whereby a specific group of actors could reduce emissions if they just had the data. So like my theory of change that I started with at Watt Time is we know we have fleets of devices all over the world who've signed up to shift energy to moments that's cleaner if we can just tell them when those times are. Different theory of change, like I'm a big fan of Transition Zero's work, they advise investors and governments on what are cheaper ways to reduce emissions, when is coal unprofitable. We have other theories of change, like Al Gore is quite focused on the whole heart of the Paris Agreement is this notion that countries are revealing their emissions, but there's really not any serious mechanisms in place to make sure, how do we know they're revealing the true numbers? By having many theories of change like that, everything ranging from these technical solutions to corporate solutions to government solutions, they all rest on the same data set. 
And the basic idea is it'd be crazy for all of those folks to measure every source of emissions in the world just for their own purpose. Makes sense to pool all that and just have a one-stop shop for all of these different theories of change. Gavin, tell us more. It's not often that folks have a clearly articulated theory of change, let alone multiple competing theories of change. Because I'm an economist by training, I have a very particular way of looking at impact that I've learned is not common in a lot of tech The way we think about CO2 emissions is we line up different specific actions a person could take that would reduce emissions. We call them theories of change because we put them into buckets of what type of change are you driving in the world? So for example, we have one bucket that is corporate sustainability officers changing the supplier of a product they already buy for the same price and the same quality. We have a very different theory of change that is automating a battery to draw power from the grid at a clean time, not a dirty time. And that will typically come through a software engineer writing code. So what we do is we line up all the theories of change that anybody can think of. We literally crowdsource them increasingly, and we have college students out there trying to think of possible new ways to reduce emissions. And we trim the list to all of the ones where we can quantify If the person does the thing, how will total global emissions be different? And if we can't measure that impact, bottom of the list. If we can measure the impact in small, bottom of the list. But we now have a prioritized list of what are the specific actions that we can name that if people did them, emissions would really go down in the real world. And we know by how much. And then we measure or hypothesize and test what data would you need to make that happen? So for example, if you want to automate a device to the cleanest five minutes and you have weekly data, good luck. Or if you want to swap out your steel supply chain and you only have good data on cement, not going to help. So we have very nuts and bolts technical views on what data would you need in order to make this possible. We go through the list, we figure out what would be impactful if people did it. We figure out how hard it would be to build, so we kind of like co-optimize those. And then we pick up the phone and start asking people who could do that thing, would you in fact do it? And we basically, if we have a hard time persuading anyone or it feels like swimming upstream, we move it to the bottom of the list until we are left with a small number of theories of change that are easy to build, would reduce a lot of emissions if people do it. And the people who have the power to do it tell us that if we just get the data, they will pull the lever. And so it's kind of a joint optimization problem that leaves you feeling like you had to do a lot of prep work and the remaining impact is oddly easy. So it's sort of very satisfying. Wow. Well, you are using advanced science through a data-driven approach to track incredibly complex data sets from around the world. Are you using that level of rigor for tracking your theories of change as well? No one ever asked that. Yes, we are. So I am originally an economist by training. And so one of the things that I particularly do in the project is make sure we have rigor on the theories of change. So we have a shared series of tools. Most of the key tool is really just a big spreadsheet, but we have a number of other projects that really go through theory of change by theory of change, right? Who are the specific people that would have to take what specific action in the real world to reduce emissions? And what information do we have about the actual amount of emissions that would be reduced if they did that? What data would they need with what level of accuracy, what frequency of update, what sort of coverage would they need in order to make that theory of change possible? And then we prioritize jointly by, 
easiest levels of accuracy to provide and coverage to provide and most impactful theories of change. And then we set our annual roadmap looking at those impact numbers in a big session across the coalition. Okay, so who's winning? Which theory yeah. of change? Is, is, it, it sounds like a really exciting horse race to some extent, all these different competing theories of change lined up in your data set. Tell us about what are some of the surprises and what are some of the leading theories of change for this project? Right now, the two leaders, one is kind of, it's obvious if you think about the Paris Agreement that anything related to that is just fundamental. So first and foremost, making sure that the nations of the world can measure their emissions is fundamental. We've had an interesting surprise in that project I had to get into in a minute if you like, but that's one of the leading contenders. The other was a bit more of a dark horse candidate. It turns out that there are a large number of corporations worldwide who would be very, very happy to swap out their supply chains for sources that can produce the same goods at the same price at lower emissions intensity. So a number of different companies are now starting to use Climate Trace to buy steel from lower emitting steel plants, buy aluminum from those plants, starting to look at could we ship on ships that have lower carbon footprints per nautical mile. And so this sort of corporate ability to swap out who they're buying from and have a race to the top, it's just growing so fast. It's probably tied for first place with international politics at this point. Incredible. Well, not surprising too, is we know that so many companies are working so hard to reduce their footprints and their emissions. Are there other use cases for chief sustainability officers and those people that are in sustainability roles who are listening to this podcast likely and wondering how can this data set be helpful to them? Yeah, one I'm a big fan of that is appealing to sustainability officers, but often pretty new. It's this concept of emissionality, which full disclosure, my organization Time supports. But what it is, is this concept that instead of thinking about a solar panel or a wind farm the old-fashioned way as a source of no emissions, thinking about it as how much emissions will be different if you build that solar panel or wind farm. Why is that important? Because it turns out building the same new renewable energy project in a location where it's going to knock out particularly dirty power plants means that for the same amount of capital, you often can double or even triple the real world emissions impact. So one of the things Climate Trace is doing is making it possible for us to identify for sustainability managers who do a lot of renewable energy purchasing, which is almost all of them, what are locations where if you were to site a new renewable energy purchase, it would have extra impact per dollar. And that's a particularly fast-growing application that in a way is another form of supply chain. Fascinating. It's great to know about emissionality and the importance of site selection for renewable energy purchasing. We also have a lot of listeners that are from the investment community, and you're talking partially about a vehicle for investing in renewable energy. For those that are really thinking about moving money towards more climate-positive investment opportunities, does Climate Trace point to some opportunities? We are able to do several very interesting things in investment, of which the one I've spent the most time with is companies that are planning to get to net zero investment portfolios. That is extremely hard to do. There's just not that many assets in the world yet that have no emissions at all. So enabling them to track what's the carbon footprint of their investments right now, what are the investments of everything in their portfolio and everything they're considering to have in their portfolio, so they could begin optimizing to the lower emissions per dollar items. That's been a relatively popular form that we're starting to see spread. Great. As you mentioned, Vice President Al Gore has been a partner and a supporter of the initiative. 
Tell us what has his role been. Yeah. So one thing that's very interesting is Al Gore was one of the co-founders. And I think something that most people don't know about Al Gore, he's, he's obviously famous for many other reasons. I think most people don't realize how good he is at AI. I will never forget in my first meeting when he walked in and legitimately had helpful recommendations on our AI algorithms to collect better data, which kind of took me aback. And I think ever since that first meeting, it mattered getting a bunch of nerds together, having technical chops like that helps. I think he has played a really unique role as one of the very few people in climate change who, if you have a hundred different climate organizations that need to work together, who's the one person that everybody respects? Al Gore doesn't have a particularly formal role, but as a practical matter, he's been the glue that holds the whole thing together. Incredible. Let's go deeper into the AI application. There's so much discussion of AI right now a lot of concerns about potential harms, a lot of curiosity around potential useful applications for decarbonization, for sustainability, for impact more generally. How has AI been helpful to climate trace and to the outcomes that you're pursuing? It's on so many levels. One thing that is what we started with is computer vision. So the kind of fundamental bread and butter that we started with at Climate Trace is we are using satellites to look at the Earth. And we're oddly enough not looking for pollution, we're looking for economic activity that is polluting. Because it turns out that is easier for an AI algorithm to really accurately measure. So the first thing we used it for is to, to scan many, 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 many images of the Earth every day and detect what our power plants doing, what our steel plants doing. The next thing we started using AI for was to scan what trade journals have, because you can sort through a lot of text quickly to detect the natural language of announcements about construction, upgrades, and characteristics of new facilities, because that'll often have lots of good clues about what type of equipment there is going to be and what are their emissions. We are now doing a third type of AI, which I don't actually really know the best name for it. We're innovating a little bit here, but it's a Bayesian meta model, and it's pretty related to the way that many AI applications now will build an ensemble model of multiple different models, sort of voting in a way on what's the most accurate approach. And so what AI allows us to do is have very, very different techniques from different authors combined in a single model and graded in a single accuracy metric so that you can get a sense of what is the consensus view of many experts using many methods, not just one particular approach, which as you can imagine is not just technically valuable, it's also politically valuable that most things in the climate trace database were not created just by one organization. Gavin, you mentioned that there's over 100 collaborating organizations involved in Climate Trace, and that seems like a massive coordination accomplishment, even with Vice President Al Gore helping pull people together. What does it take to work with so many groups in practice? And also give us a sense of why so many different groups are needed. What is it they say about startups? Nobody would ever found a startup if they knew how hard it was. <laughs> so I think that part of what worked about Climate Trace is we had no intention to get this big. This started with three groups who knew each other saying, hey, let's found a project. And then we had a simple rule. We said, we're not going to work backwards from the most famous people or the most influential organizations. We're only going to partner with people who show up in their very first meeting and add real value to move the ball forward. So we have a very informal style that is very, very focused on 
We're not going to debate who's on what committee or who gets which title. We are going to have a clear work plan and say, anybody who volunteers to do the next step in the work plan, great, you're in the club. And it's been a very interesting way to work that I don't think we would have guessed would be this successful. It just sort of happened. And in terms of why it takes so many groups, so one thing is if you just think about how phenomenally large the undertaking we're talking about is, if you were trying to do all the power plants in the world, that's one thing. But that is one of many, many, many different categories of emitting activity. What AI can do really well is combine expert knowledge with ground truth data where we have high quality sensors with globally applicable data like satellites. But that means you need experts in every type of emissions there are. You need experts in how satellites work and the physics of things like how light bends at different distances. You need machine learning experts, political experts, and so on and so on. So what we've essentially realized is that the key to this problem was instead of any one organization trying to do it, divide and conquer, but share the benefits with everybody. So I, for example, the electricity lead, I spend no time thinking about how does the forestry model work. And we have folks donating ground truth data who spend no time thinking about how does machine learning work. And basically by dividing the problem up into these little buckets by sector of the economy, by whether you're donating data, processing data, or speaking to users or doing quality control, by everybody kind of breaking off a piece that is close to their organization's core specialty, we've been able to turn it into many, many small problems, but all share in the benefit of the joint success. And I think that was the key to a project that was just too big for any one organization to ever do. Right. And in addition to nonprofit research-based organizations like WattTime, some companies have been involved too. I understand the initial funding came from google.org. Tell us about that and any other companies whose contribution has really been meaningful. Google has been a wonderful supporter, both on funding and on a technical level, really benefited from that. We have received some additional funding from some other companies. So Generation Investment Management, for example, made not an investment, but a donation to help fund the work. We've also got some really interesting companies donating data. Dalmia Cement is an example of a company that is very proud of how their cement plants are very green. They want the world to know how clean every cement plant is or isn't in the world. So they're an example of a whole category of company that has been working with us to share what are their sensors saying on the ground about the output of these different facilities so we can calibrate our algorithms. And then we are also working with some companies who are providers of data. Blue Sky Analytics is a good example of a for-profit company that is in the business of monitoring emissions from space. And then maybe a final category would be there are a lot of satellite data providers who are either donating or in some cases selling us data that is what powers the whole system. Well, Gavin, I think you've painted a clear picture of the type of coalition it takes to pull off an effort like this. And the initiative has been in progress now for a few years. So I'm curious, what has it achieved so far? On a technical level, we, in our first year, set a goal of estimating the emissions of every country in the world. And that was the first year. The second year, last year, we set a technical goal of measuring 72,000 of the largest individual sources of emissions in the world, like steel plants, power plants, planes, and ships. And this year, our goal is to measure the 70 or so million largest sources on the planet. So really trying to hit that comprehensive global coverage at this very detailed level. 
That's our technical achievements. In terms of the impact, a project like this doesn't have impact on day one because so much of it is just building the thing before anyone can use it. But we are beginning to have users. We have some car companies, for example, now who have actually begun swapping out their supply chains for cleaner facilities. We have some state governments around the world who are using these data to take another look at their investment portfolios for reducing emissions, or what do we call that in policy speak? We have a number of banks As the project accelerates, what we are really looking forward to is at COP28 this year in the first week of December, we're planning on unveiling a number of the users who signed up in the last few months who are hoping to kind of reveal their names with a bang. So I'm not going to name some of them, but it has been really striking for me as an activist. To be honest, I thought in the beginning, this project would be mostly a technical undertaking that us NGOs would care about. And and it's been a little bit stunning to me to see how many people want to reduce emissions if you can just give them the data. You know, I've been an environmental activist for a long time, about 10 years now, and it's just been stunning to me on this project how many people want the data and want to reduce the emissions of their organization if we can just give them the tools. And it feels like swimming downstream. And so we have, what was it, 15,000 downloads in the first week with the new data? and a really striking number of organizations starting to actually optimize. Gavin, what about surprises? You are now sitting on so much data, and I know that you are unpacking it every day, and there's insights that are being applied in many different use cases. What would stand out to you as the biggest surprise or learning that you've surfaced so far from this initiative? I think the biggest surprise from my perspective has been that what we thought was going to be our number one theory of change did not find the result we were expecting to find. So the reason we began monitoring the emissions of countries and their submissions to the Paris Agreement is there had been a widespread belief on the part of many climate negotiators that because there wasn't much monitoring and verification, surely countries must be lying to each other. And I think the the just jaw-dropping result we found in our first year is how honest countries have been with each other. And that hasn't made the news as much because it's always more popular to say somebody was worse than you thought. And a story that actually everybody was dealing with each other in largely good faith is not necessarily headline grabbing, but is transformative in terms of what it actually means for a group of human beings in the Paris Agreement who need to cooperate with each other. So I can't think of a surprise bigger than learning that the data were actually very good. Wow, that is incredible. I agree. It really is a bit of a surprise to hear that countries are being so honest with each other. Of course, while it's an encouraging surprise, we can't assume that countries will forever be honest. And so the transparency Climate Trace creates is really important. What about surprises on the technical side? Things that you didn't anticipate in regards to how you'd actually collect and analyze data at this scale? One of the things that people find really surprising about Climate Trace is that if you're trying to use satellites to find emissions, you would think that looking for emissions is how you do it. And the fact that we have figured out that looking for CO2 from space is not the best way to find CO2 from space, I think it's just kind of an interesting technical footnote. Okay, so you're leaving us on a clipping or Okay. <laughs> <laughs> One of the things we learned is that the background level of CO2 in the atmosphere is so large now, and wind being what it is, that if you see a bunch of CO2 in the atmosphere, doesn't necessarily mean it came from there. We sort of assumed initially when we were starting to work with satellites that the satellites which can see CO2 in, I think it's infrared, 
would be the best way to detect where emissions are coming from. And it's just been a really interesting learning that you can actually get better accuracy out of models calibrated against the sensors on the ground that can say what's really happening if you don't prioritize looking for emissions directly, but instead you prioritize looking for things that are really, really easy to see with high accuracy that are correlated with emissions. So like Climate Trace looks for steel mills that burn above a certain temperature. We look for vapor plumes and heat plumes in rivers coming from power plants and other indirect signals of emissions. And to our surprise, that has actually produced better correlation coefficients and predictors of emissions than looking for emissions themselves. Thanks, Kevin. That is really interesting and I think illustrates in just one small way how much complexity there is in what you're dealing with. Let's talk about what comes next for Climate Trace. I've read that one next step is to release comprehensive facility-level data representing all major known sources of emissions, including monthly and weekly data. That sounds like another monumental achievement. What will that data enable? And what do you hope it will achieve? So our goal this year is to first and foremost cover the whole world. And then starting next year, we want to bring down that time granularity towards weekly and eventually hopefully close to real time. Those are both technical goals. And so why are we doing that? We prioritize global coverage first and foremost because what global lets you do that has never been done in history is to cross-check all the data against each other. So one of my favorite examples is if you add up the supposed carbon footprints of every company that voluntarily self-reports their emissions in corporate sustainability, it does not equal the national total. It's always less. And we don't know if it should because we don't actually have any data on what are all the emissions of all the companies that just chose not to report. Same pattern if you add up all the cities. Same pattern if you add up all the investments. And so right now we live in a world where there are all these people thinking about emissions data, but these systems can't speak to each other. Nobody can check whether anything is true through the simple method of seeing if the numbers add up and seeing how different sources compare. So our big priority for this year is to get to a world where anybody who's got an emissions data set of anything that happened in the real physical world knows how that fits into the larger ecosystem, which we view as kind of table stakes for moving into a world where all emissions numbers have to be real, it would be impossible to hide, and everything has to be verified multiple different ways, because that will basically ensure the system is honest. We think that's a good focus for the year. And next year, what we really want to begin focusing on is, cool, now that we trust the data, how do you optimize more? And so folks like me working on what I think of as kind of next generation climate technologies where we can automatically reduce emissions through software code that optimizes between different times, different places, different supply chains, all of that rests on the assumption that you've got accurate, comprehensive, detailed data that's also pretty granular. So we sort of see it as a one-two punch. This year, the real focus is on making the world's data interoperable. And then in some ways, the real story begins where we can start to optimize the heck out of it and hopefully demonstrate that reducing emissions is easier than people have previously experienced. I appreciate that you're distinguishing between your technical goals and then the many different types of impact goals that might result from it. And I know that, as you've mentioned, you have several different competing theories of change. But with a vision like you've articulated for the type of technical feats that you're working towards, what do you think will be the end result or what do you hope will be the end result coming from Climate Trace if you look back five years from now? 
That was very interesting phrasing because I think what I think and what I hope might not be the same. So speaking now for myself, not for the whole Climate Trace Coalition, what I hope will happen is we will discover that the type of optimization that Wattime has been doing, where it can be literally automated and there's literally no cost, is actually just the first of a very large category. If it is true that there's a lot of spread in the data, kind of how like a stock market trader might want to see prices that are, so you can buy low, sell high. If it is true that there are a lot of opportunities throughout the economy where there is an activity that is very emitting and very not emitting, and they actually cost the same thing, and it'd be easy to use either one, then we are going to discover massive amounts of emission savings very, very quickly. And I think that would have the potential to reshape the environmental movement, because frankly, we're not used to tasting success. We're used to things being hard. So that is my hope. It could be what happens is what we discover is there are not very big spreads. It could be we discover that the only way we're going to get through this thing is with all the theories of change the world already has. In which case, what we think Climate Trace will have done is basically helped validate and do measurement verification for existing theories of change. But I get excited about the possibility that the data may say there's an easier way than we've previously seen, because I think that's one of the few things that would really put the movement on the next level. Gavin, I'm curious if this project could actually be a model for other spaces. Really, you're using AI, you're using sensing at a massive scale. You're using collaboration also at a pretty massive scale, and you're focusing on emissions. There's other, say, environmental problems that could perhaps benefit from the same sort of thing. And I'm thinking about the health of our oceans or biodiversity loss. Are you thinking at all about replication or of working in other spaces? Yeah. So Climate Trace made a decision as a coalition that we already have such a big problem that we should stay pretty focused. But we're really excited about the idea that other people could do similar projects and we could sort of help show them what worked. We're probably going to move into one other area, which is not just greenhouse gas emissions, but other air emissions like SO2 and PM2.5, just because we could reuse a lot of our code. But I think biodiversity, a number of other issues, a similar coalition with similar methods probably could succeed, even though we're not the people to do it. And I would maybe point at one example I'm very impressed by is the Human Genome Project, who I would argue has made a quiet revolution in biology through so, so many different researchers collaborating on a shared data set that was sort of ready-made for conducting analysis on how we could do better medically. And I suspect that means if it can work in health and it can work in climate, it could probably work in a lot of things. Gavin, what's next for Wattime? We've talked a bit about what's next for Climate Trace. What about your organization? So Wattime is essentially the same vision, but for electricity. One thing that's going on at Wattime is um, because we focus exclusively on theories of change that there's sort of no catch, they're practically free, they don't affect comfort, we are growing extremely fast in terms of users. So We are headed, we suspect, within 12 months to multi-billion device scale for IoT devices. And we are headed in the renewable energy industry. I think we just crossed 44% of American corporate renewable energy purchasing is using our data to optimize things. And frankly, we don't care if it's our data or somebody else's data. We're not a business. We're a nonprofit. We just want it to happen. But we are hoping to be within the next year or two living in a world where it's the norm 
in device timing or renewable energy purchasing to say, well, of course I want to optimize for more impact. Why wouldn't I? Say more. What's needed technically to make that possible? The Climate Trace project, one of the regional reasons we were interested is that you do need to have data on different power plants across the world. So we, as Climate Trace, are planning on hitting the goal of this year monitoring the emissions of functionally every power plant in the world. That's going to have immediate implications for Watt Time that for all the companies who've signed up to automatically shift electric vehicles to cleaner times, automatically build wind farms or solar panels in better locations, now they're going to have the data to do that not just in a few countries, but everywhere. We are spending a lot of time with companies who already use our technology in America, preparing for rolling out the same techniques on a global scale and hoping that their partners and competitors in other countries, when they see this tech, will be excited to do the same thing. Great. Gavin, you've been talking a bit about power plants and the Biden administration recently announced the first regulations really limiting greenhouse gas pollution from existing power plants. And I'm curious how this intersects with the Climate Trace Project and how policy can either be accelerated through the data that you're collecting or how it's a useful tool for some of those theories of change that you're working on. We do have different experts and different theories of change. I'm not the policy expert. My background is more in voluntary adoption, as you can probably tell from my answers. But we have other policy experts. One thing that has been really striking from a policy perspective is how many governments are not confident they have good data on their own power plants. So we have been quietly working with a couple of national governments to hand them data on what we estimate their own power plants are doing which, as you can imagine, is relevant if there are governors, if there are energy departments who maybe have a reason to make things look a little more rosy than it is. So that has pretty significant policy implications if the folks at the top of the food chain just know what's really going on. That's not, as far as we know, a problem in the United States. The United States power plants have some of the highest quality monitoring in the world. We do power plants really well in America. The Biden administration doesn't need our help to know what's going on with power plant emissions. We do think that it is not guaranteed that the new proposed regulations are going to go through. If they do go through, it's going to mean that we now have more and more renewable energy on the grid is the functional thing that will happen. And that is going to mean that there are more electric vehicles, more thermostats, more batteries who could reduce emissions even faster by optimizing So others in the coalition could probably tell you better about some of the details of how we can directly ourselves help with policy. But what I'm seeing is that the opportunity for voluntary action depends on how much is that spread between the dirtiest and the cleanest thing available to you. And the new proposed regulations would mean that that spread grows much faster in this virtuous cycle of voluntary action will just get even more effective. Gavin, one of the things that's also being elevated as part of this new regulation from the Biden administration is the advancement of technology to capture emissions before they're leaving the smokestack. And I'm curious if that's something that you're able to track as well, or or if the impact of carbon capture is showing up in the data in some way. To be honest, it's so rare still, it's functionally not showing up in the data yet. So we are aware of it and paying attention, but the reality is there's barely any plants out there really doing it yet. So it hasn't made a big difference in our data set. We hope that changes soon. Gavin, for listeners really inspired 
by what you're doing, what can they do to help? Yeah, so Climate Trace is coalition. You can jump in and help. We have a lot of volunteers who do things like look through different data sets and figure out which ones we think we can believe and help put them in our database. We are philanthropically funded, so we accept donations. And one form of donation we accept that most groups don't is data. So if you work at a company or for a government agency that has any data on emissions, economic activity, kind of details of how planes, ships, power plants, any of that works, we would love to accept your donations of data. And the nice thing about donating data is it doesn't cost you a thing and you get to keep it, but it helps make our AI more powerful. So we would love anybody who is inspired to jump in on any of those things. Great. Gavin, thank you so much for your time today and best of luck with this important project. Thank you very much. It was wonderful to be here. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Invested in Climate. Please remember to rate us on Apple, Spotify, or Google. Find show notes, sign up for updates, get in touch, and visualize your climate action at investedinclimate.com. This podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes only and does not constitute financial, accounting, or legal advice. Thanks again. 